Good morning, Highland Church family. Uh, This morning, I have a quick announcement to get us started off. Here in a week or so, on April 7th, we are going to be uniting with other churches all around central Wisconsin for a day of fasting and a day of prayer. So during this time, we've got more details coming soon, but just put that on your calendars now. We're going to have a special time where we abstain from eating maybe one or two meals. And during that time, instead, we use it for praying for our our leaders, for praying for this COVID-19 crisis to be over, for praying for our first responders and our medical personnel, for praying for God to continue to give us endurance and, and strength to reflect the love of Christ praying for other people to come to know Christ during this time. So we just encourage you to be a part of that together uh, with Highland Community Church and all sorts of other churches throughout central Wisconsin. So let me go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our sermon text this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to open up your word and to continue to hear from you. Even though we are living in some uncertain times and there are many things that are burdening our hearts this morning, I just pray that this time of worship can be refreshing and energizing to us. Father, in the midst of a trying time, I pray that you are our rock and our fortress and our strong deliverer. So Father, we just pray that you are glorified with our time together this morning. Allow the Spirit to speak words of truth and encouragement to our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I had a rather unforgettable travel experience. I was headed down to Guatemala City with a group of 14 high schoolers for a short-term mission trip. And this particular morning, we were at the Miami airport. We had just boarded our plane. And after, you know, we watched our little safety video and all those sorts of things, our plane began to taxi towards the runway. At that point, I'm thinking everything is smooth sailing from there. It's all going to be great. But after about 20 minutes of taxiing, I realized that we were no longer headed towards the runway, but instead we had been taxiing the complete opposite direction of the airport. And as I looked out, I noticed through my window that we were approaching this absolutely massive and thick concrete wall. And I thought to myself, that's a little strange. And then our plane actually taxied behind the wall and came to a complete stop. Now, I've done enough traveling to know that that is not normal. And just as I'm trying to figure out what's going on, one of my high schoolers says, hey, Andrew, look out the window. I think I see a police car approaching us. So I look out the window, and he's right. But it wasn't just one police car. It wasn't five. It wasn't ten. There were 20 police cars flying with their lights going 80 miles an hour coming right towards us. And Just a few moments later, a SWAT team with full combat gear rolls over a staircase. They come bursting into the plane. They go from front to back, waving their assault rifles around, yelling, get your hands in the air and put your heads down and nobody move. It was absolutely terrifying. And then a few moments later, they begin grabbing everyone and shouting, get off the plane as quickly as possible. Go, go, go. And my students are screaming. Everyone's terrified. We're trying to get off the plane. And I will tell you that I have never felt so intimidated, unsure of myself, and afraid as I did in that moment. There's a a terrible feeling. I felt totally inadequate to respond to that crisis. 
I felt like in those moments, these scared high schoolers were looking to me for direction and for security, but I was feeling as helpless and scared as they were. I had planned on leading a typical mission trip down to Guatemala City, not to try to lead this group through a potential terrorist threat. My circumstances were frightening, and it left me in the grip of fear and anxiety. And you know, I share that story this morning because I imagine that on this Sunday morning, there are many of us who are experiencing those same emotions. In a very real way, our world right now is in the grip of fear and anxiety. As a culture, we have veered off into uncharted territory, and many of the fixtures that we regularly trust in for a sense of normalcy and security have been shaken to their very foundations. In a moment of crisis and fear, how should we as Christ followers respond? What are passages that we can turn to that will speak words of hope to our soul, that will give grace and peace to our spirits, that will fill our minds with truth? How are we to respond? Because this morning, a lot of us are feeling those emotions of feeling overwhelming fear and anxiety. A lot of us feel like we are trapped in the midst of this coronavirus crisis. And this morning, we are going to encounter a man who similarly was going through a crisis. He was paralyzed with fear. He was overwhelmed with anxiety about his future, his family's future, and his nation's future. His name was Joshua. So why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1. And as you turn there, let me give a little bit of background to this book and this moment in his life. The book of Joshua opens up on a pretty melancholy note. It opens up in a season of crisis. The first verse of chapter 1 says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Now we might be tempted to read right past those words, but realize how significant this would have been for the nation of Israel. Moses is dead. At this point in time, Moses was the greatest leader the world had ever known. Moses had defeated the greatest and most powerful army of the entire ancient world. Not only that, Moses had performed signs and wonders on a scale that was unprecedented. Moses had penned personally the first five books of God's inspired and errant word. And Moses had a relationship with God that was unlike any other. Moses spoke to God face to face like a friend speaks with another friend. And for the last 40 years, Moses had led a nation of over a million people through the wilderness and through all sorts of trials and tribulations. And here they are, right on the verge of entering into the promised land, and they're going to face new armies, they're going to face new challenges, they are going to face the unknown, and their great leader dies. The greatest and godliest leader the world has ever known is gone, and Joshua is left standing as his heir apparent holding this massive mantle. Joshua just got thrust into the spotlight. Millions of eyes are on him looking for leadership, looking for someone to give them encouragement, direction, and peace. But Joshua didn't feel courageous or confident. He didn't ask for this mantle of leadership. He didn't want that weight of responsibility that was being placed upon him. In many ways, Joshua felt inadequate for the call that was placed on his life. He was in the midst of a national crisis and he was 
hungry for hope. He was desperate for a word of encouragement. He needed some truth to ground himself in. And that's what our passage this morning is all about. Let's look at the first nine verses of Joshua. I'll skip verses three and four, but let's start in verse one. It says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, Joshua, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall call this people uh, to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law of Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In one of the darkest moments of Joshua's life, the Lord appears to him to remind Joshua that he is never alone. He gives Joshua two specific things in this text. He comforts Joshua, but then the Lord also calls Joshua. First, the Lord actively draws near to Joshua to speak words of hope and truth and peace directly to his heart. But second, the Lord calls Joshua. He calls Joshua to confront this crisis with courage. And that really brings us to our big idea this morning. If there's one thing that I think the Lord wants us to hear from this passage today, it's this. We need to confront crisis with courage. We need to confront crisis with courage. Now, here's the thing. I know that's easier said than done. When crises arise, the human response is not courage, it's panic. Our response is not faith, but rather fear. We're fearful because our powerlessness and lack of control over the future is fully exposed. Our presumptuous planning disintegrates right before our eyes. Our financial cushion that we trust in evaporates. And all of the things that we look to for normalcy and a sense of peace are gone. And instead, an uneasy sense of fear and anxiety settle in and fill every last nook and cranny of our lives. So how do we respond? How can we ever hope to find peace in the midst of panic? How can we confront our crisis with courage? When our passage, I think the Lord gives Joshua three tools to help him confront crisis with courage. And I think those are three tools that we can use in excess as well. So let's look at our first tool. Point number one, you can write it down this way if you're taking notes. We need to remember who is with us. We need to remember who is with us. In this passage, God encourages Joshua three times to be strong and courageous. In this passage, courage is a choice, not an emotion. 
But notice that God bookends these threefold exhortations to be strong and courageous with a promise. He says, Joshua, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Yahweh, your God, is with you wherever you go. He gives Joshua a promise that he can begin to construct his courage upon. The first key to confronting crisis with courage is by remembering who is with us. Remembering who is with us. We need to realize that fear oftentimes settles in when we feel futile and when we feel forgotten. We are most afraid when we feel most powerless and most isolated. And Joshua experienced an overwhelming sense of both of those emotions. As he looked at the emerging crisis in his life and then he looked in the mirror, he said, I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm hopeless. Because Joshua was powerless to change his circumstances. And as his powerlessness sank in, his heart trembled with fear over the future. And I imagine that's how many of us are feeling this morning. Our world is in the midst of a crisis that we never would have anticipated. Even a few months ago, we never would have imagined that the COVID-19 virus would spread into a global pandemic that has brought the world essentially to a screeching halt. And as now we look out onto the horizon of our future, it can feel very frightening. The future is unknown, and when we live in a fog of uncertainty, it is profoundly disorienting and uncomfortable. When will they develop a vaccine or treatment for the virus so that we can relax some of these restrictions? When will the stock market find its floor and begin to bounce back? When will we be able to meet again together for worship and for Sunday school and for uh, small groups? When will I be able to go back to school? Is this going to affect my post-graduation plans? What do I do if I get laid off? Will I be able to find a job that can give me the amount of pay that I need to pay off my, my bills? Those are very real questions that are being asked right now. And my heart grieves for the emotional pain that undergirds each of those. You know, this season of life, in a very real sense, kind of feels like an unrequested, undesired whitewater rafting expedition. Many of us feel like we have been dropped into a whitewater raft with no map, with no life jacket, and with no operator's manual. And as the currents of life continue to sweep us downstream, we feel like we have no idea what awaits around the next bend. But we do hear the deafening echo of class four rapids reverberating off of the rock face. And we know one thing for certain, that rough waters lie ahead. Now, I'll be honest, I've never gone whitewater rafting with my family. So if I was dropped into a whitewater raft, I would feel profoundly frightened because the waters are dangerous and I have no idea what I'm doing. That would be scary for me. But here's the reality. There are over 10 million Americans every year who go whitewater rafting. Now, what's the difference between their circumstances and the ones that I've just described? Well, really, there's only one thing. They have a guide in the raft with them. They weren't kidnapped. They weren't forced to be there. They chose to be in that raft. And the reason they did so is because they have a guide. They have someone in the raft who knows what lies beyond the next turn. 
They have someone in the raft who knows how to steer and navigate through the rapids safely. They have someone in the raft who has promised to stick with them and make sure that they arrive on the other side safely. Having a guide in the raft with you makes all of the difference. And God wants us to realize that we don't have to face uh, fear the raging rapids of our life right now because we're not left alone. God promises that he will be our guide. God promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. God promises to give us his constant power and presence. We don't have to fear what lies beyond the next bend because God is with us and he's already been there. That's exactly what God is promising Joshua in verses 5 and 9. He says to Joshua, you can confront this crisis with courage because I will be with you to the very end. He says, Joshua, I've not forgotten you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go. He gives Joshua a powerful promise. And it's a promise that we can take hold of as well. In Hebrews chapter 13, God reiterates this promise for us. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I don't have to be afraid. What can man do to me? We don't have to fear what this world can do to us because Jesus is with us. And even more than that, Scripture tells us that Jesus is for us. So yes, we might have troubles in this world, but we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Just as knowing that there's a guide in the raft makes all the difference when white water rafting, knowing that Jesus is with us makes all the difference in the middle of our crisis. So first, we need to remember that God is with us. But second, we need to remember the kind of God who is with us as well. Right now, we need to regularly rehearse God's character because the reality is we serve an awesome God. This week, I was thinking of the different attributes and characteristics of God that would be important for us to dwell on right now. And there are so many, but there are three that I think are vital right now for us to rehearse. We serve a God who's sovereign. We serve a God who's wise. And we serve a God who is loving. First, we need to remember that we serve a sovereign God. Meaning that all things in this universe are under God's control and under his purview. COVID-19 didn't take God by surprise. He isn't on pins and needles wondering how this is all going to play out. God knows the beginning from the end. And God remains seated on his throne. Even though God is never the cause of evil or the author of pain, God is still sovereign over the storms of life. And he promises that he has a plan for our pain. This week I've been finding comfort in the words of Psalm 29.10 that say the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. In that psalm, David makes a profound observation. In scripture, the floodwaters, the storms, the, the mighty waters, those tend to symbolize the chaos and the brokenness of a fallen world. And David, the psalmist, rightly recognizes God sits enthroned over the floodwaters. God is in control. We don't have to be afraid. He's never blindsided by anything. He doesn't have to react. 
He's working all things together according to his perfect plan. And that brings us to a second attribute we need to remember as well, his wisdom. We serve a wise God. God is not only sovereign, he is infinitely wise. Many times God's plans are incomprehensible to us because we view this universe through the lens of finite, fallen humanity. But God promises us if we could see things through his perfect perspective, all of the puzzle pieces would fit together. We need to cling to the truth of Romans 8.28. And for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purposes. In God's perfect wisdom, he is sovereignly working out his plan for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. And sometimes his plan has us go down some rapids or waterfalls we would have rather chosen to avoid. But in the midst of that, God says, trust me. Trust in my wisdom. Let me be God. And it's so much easier to do those things when we understand and rehearse a third attribute of God as well. He is loving. We serve a loving God. God loves us to a greater degree than we can possibly comprehend. God's love is sacrificial. God's love is inexhaustible. God's love is relentless. I'm reminded of that just a few verses later in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35, where Paul writes that, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine Shall nakedness or danger of sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Not even coronavirus, not even a bottoming out stock exchange, not even social isolation, not even a lost job or a sick family member. Now, I am in no way trying to trivialize those things. However, as Christ followers, we have a different perspective than the rest of the world because this verse tells us that no matter what the trial, we are more than conquerors. Paul means that in Christ, these trials no longer have power over us because they are temporary. Eternity has been secured for us. The sting of death has been removed. The boast of sin and grave have been silenced. The chains of our spiritual slavery have been totally eradicated. No matter what life throws our ways, we still have God's love and we have the promise of eternity. We need to be careful, so careful, not to believe the lie that if God loved me, he would make my life always easy and comfortable. God doesn't promise his children that. In fact, in scripture, he tells us a lot of the times we can expect troubles and difficulties in this life. But he also promises us that he is making all things new, but in his perfect timing. And though we don't feel the full effect of that, yet one day his work of redemption will be complete. I was thinking of the Josh Baldwin song a lot this week. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand 
in your life. We need to remember who is with us. But second, Joshua tells jo- uh, God tells Joshua he also needs to stay focused on his mission, even in the midst of crisis. That's the second tool. Stay focused on our mission. Notice that after God reminds Joshua who is with him, he proceeds to instruct Joshua to get back to work. God tells Joshua, now's not the time to be resigned or defeatist or self-absorbed. God doesn't invalidate the trial that Joshua is going through. However, God also doesn't give Joshua a free pass to check out from serving him. God recommissions Joshua. God says, I have a plan. He says, Joshua, I've got a mission for your life. You are going to lead my people into the promised land. And through my power in you, you are going to cause them to inherit the land that I've promised to them. Now's not a time for inaction, Joshua. Now is a time for faithful service. And you know, we need that same word of encouragement. Because in the midst of crisis, it's easy for us to become self-absorbed rather than selfless. It's easy for us to turn the focus on ourselves rather than thinking of others. And when we do that, we miss out on an incredible opportunity to reflect our Savior, Jesus, to a hurting and hopeless world. Times of crises can be the church's greatest hour or her greatest failure. And throughout church history, moments of crisis have actually been some of the greatest catalysts for gospel expansion. This week I was thinking of a plague in the years 251 to 266 AD that helped the Christian faith go from a small marginal religion in the Roman Empire to the predominant religion by the end of the century. During those 15 years, a terrible plague broke out through much of the Roman Empire. And the difference in response between the pagan priests and politicians and the Christ followers in the church was profound. The pagan physicians and politicians exhibited unbridled fear and selfishness. They abandoned the sick to take care of themselves. They hoarded supplies and food. They acted in totally self-centered ways. But the Christian response was countercultural and radical. During that time, it was the Christians who took up the responsibility of tending to the sick and caring for them. It was the Christians who made sure that people had enough to eat. Over 3,000 people a day were being fed by the church in the city of Antioch. It was the Christian churches who responded with kindness and compassion. And it was the Christ followers who overcame panic with a supernatural peace. Their witness spoke volumes to a fearful and hopeless world. Over a century later, there was a pagan emperor named Julian the Apostate who wanted to eradicate Christianity from the Roman Empire, and he lamented because of their enduring reputation of selfless love and service. He wrote to a friend, the Christian faith has been specifically advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It is a scandal that there's not a single Jew who's a beggar and that those godless Galileans, the Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for our poor as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should offer them. A time of unprecedented crisis was the church's greatest hour. And in the midst of our crisis right now, this COVID-19 crisis, this can be our finest hour or our greatest failure. And we need to make sure that this is our finest hour. As the church, as the body of Christ, 
God has given us a profoundly important mission. We are called to make disciples. We're called to love him faithfully, and we are called to love others sacrificially. Now notice that all of those things are profoundly others-centered. We can't do any of those things well if we're being egocentric and paralyzed with fear. Or to say it another way, God cannot steer a parked car. God can't steer a parked car. We have to be in motion. We have to be acting. Just as God said to Joshua, Joshua, stay focused on my mission for your life. He's able to say to his bride, the church, to all of us, stay focused on Jesus. Stay focused on the gospel. Don't take your eyes off of your Savior or off of eternity. Practically this week, what would it look like for us to stay focused on our mission? I don't really have time to flush these out, but I have four quick words, four ideas for us. First, let's make sure that we're not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Obviously, we can't gather together right now physically and in person, but we live in an amazing time of history where we have so many technological ways to stay connected in Christian community. Make sure to have that time of worship. Reach out to your small group through video chats. Make sure that you're looking at all the different options of how to worship and keep Christ central during this time. Don't allow this to be an eight-week time away from your walk with Christ. A second idea is focusing on how we can be good Samaritans rather than hoarders. I think of the parable of the good Samaritan. And to be a good neighbor means that we have to make sacrifices and prioritize the needs of others and not just look at our own needs. Right now, who are our neighbors that need supplies? Who are the people that we can pick up groceries for? Who are the people that we need to give a phone call to and let them know that they're not alone or forgotten? How can we be good Samaritans during this time? A third idea is we need to be prayer warriors, not passive participants. Rather than being fatalistic and saying, whatever happens, happens, and we're just stuck for the ride. No, we know that we can enter into the throne room of God through Jesus, our great high priest. We can pray and turn our anxieties over to him, and he will give us the peace that surpasses all understanding. Join us in our day of prayer and fasting on April 7th. When you're feeling uh, stuck in the crisis, turn that over as an opportunity to pray. And then here's a fourth idea of how we can stay focused on our mission. We need to be good citizens, not rights retainers during this time. Right now, there's a lot of things going on in our life that are inconvenient and uncomfortable. But God calls us to honor the governing authorities he's placed in our life. So how can we be a model of what it looks like to be a good citizen, of considering the needs of others as more significant than our own? Rather than focusing on our rights and what we deserve, how can we be good citizens and good neighbors? So we need to remember, first of all, who is with us. Second, we need to stay focused on our mission. But God gives Joshua a third tool as well to confront his crisis with courage. God reminds Joshua of what material he needs to meditate on. That's the third thing. We need to meditate on the right materials. Notice that God gives Joshua, God tells Joshua that his success as a political and military leader is going to come directly through meditating on his word day and night. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. God says, Joshua, 
Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn to it to the right hand or the left so that you can have good success wherever you go. This book of the law should not depart from your mouth, but meditate on it, Joshua, day and night, so that you can be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. He says, Joshua, consume your thoughts with my word. Just imagine all of the unknowns that might have been consuming Joshua's thoughts. What if my army isn't trained well enough? What if the enemy is stronger than I anticipated? What if the cities are more well fortified? What if we don't have enough provisions to last? What if all of these things could be going through his mind? It'd be so easy for Joshua to eat the bread of anxious toil every single day. It'd be so easy for Joshua to fear fearful because of his lack of control over his future and his circumstances. It'd be so easy for Joshua to become angry and cynical by imagining all of the worst case scenarios of what the coming months and years might hold. But notice God tells Joshua, don't allow your mind to be consumed with all the what ifs of the future. Don't allow yourself to eat the bread of anxious toil. Courage is not about having everything figured out and having all the right answers. Courage is the ability to choose trusting in God in the midst of the crisis. Courage is learning to trust in the I am in the middle of the what ifs. God tells Joshua and thereby us, I've got something better for you to meditate on and to consume your thoughts with. I want you to be dwelling on the certainty of my word, my truths, and my promise. God tells Joshua, I want you to meditate on the right materials. And not only, not only meditate on them, but implement them. Implement God's directions and live them out. I know that right now, we feel like we are trapped in a fog of uncertainty and fear. And we don't know where to move. We don't know what next step to take. But God says, I have not left you directionless. I have given you a light unto your feet and a lamp unto your paths. I've given you a compass and it's my word. Meditate on my word. Why do you think in this passage, not only this passage, in all of scripture, God emphasizes meditating on his word so much? Well, I think as we look at scripture, the answer becomes clear. It's because meditation leads to transformation. Meditation leads to transformation. Whatever consumes our thoughts will always inform and impact our emotions, our affections, and our actions. A good illustration of meditation is steeping a tea bag in hot water. Just think of having a cup of hot water right before you, and you take that tea bag and you dunk it in and you steep it over and over again for over a few minutes. Each time the tea bag goes into the hot water, it releases more of the color, the flavor, the aroma of the tea into that cup. And over time, it's no longer a cup of water sitting there, but it's transformed into a cup of tea. The same is true with our mind. Whatever we are immersing our mind in, whatever we are dunking our minds in over and over again, it will transform us. And God says the only way to have courage is by making sure that you're steeping your mind in my word day and night. So here's an important question for us to ask this morning. What has been consuming our thoughts? What are we repeating and whispering to ourselves all day? What kind of things are we steeping our mind in during this crisis? 
Or to think of it another way, if we could somehow use a computer algorithm to symbolize, a, uh, to generate a symbol this morning of what we've been thinking about, what would that symbol be? Maybe for some of us, it would be a CNN or Fox News logo. Over the last two weeks, we cannot go 10 minutes without turning on the news station and trying to get the, new, the latest update. And because of that, our mind is filled with the cynical fear of what's going to happen next. Maybe for some of us, it would be a graph of the stock market. All we can think about is the money that we've lost and how fearful we are of the future. Maybe for some of us, it would be a big red cross. We are consumed with fear of what if I contract this virus? What if a family member contracts this virus and we are just consumed about protecting our our health? Maybe for some of us, it would be a Netflix symbol. Life is profoundly uncomfortable and painful right now, and we are trying to use music or movies or entertainment or anything that we can do just to escape from it a little bit. We're trying to numb ourselves and distract ourselves from the current crisis. Now, I'm not saying that we can't think about any of those things. However, those things can't be our primary meditation. Because remember, meditation leads to transformation. And God tells us the only thing that can transform our panic into peace and our fear into faith is meditating on his word. We need to meditate on the right materials. With the extra time that we now have, we need to spend more time with God, not less. And a lot of our daily distractions have been stripped away. We can't use the excuse anymore, I'm too busy to spend time with God. We don't have that excuse anymore. In the midst of a crisis, God wants us to consume our thoughts, our minds, and our hearts with his word. And he promises to meet us there. In the middle of a crisis, the best place to be is God's presence. So this week, what can we do to make sure we're meditating on the right material? Maybe it's reading a daily devotional with your family to start off the day. Maybe after your quiet time, you write a short summary and send it to a friend or your small group. Maybe it's when you're feeling anxious and stressed, you choose prayer, not despair. Maybe it's committing to listening to a worship song or or a sermon before you turn on that other music or those movies or other forms of entertainment. Just keep dunking your mind in the truth because you aren't going to find God's truth in our culture anywhere else. May make God your heart's greatest meditation in these uncertain times. I know it's a little frightening, but God wants us to know that we don't have to be afraid. We can confront crisis with courage, but it's not a courage that comes from within. It's a courage that comes from him. A courage that comes from remembering who's with us. A courage that comes from staying focused on our mission. A courage that comes from meditating on the right material. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this passage that you've preserved where you spoke words of truth and hope and grace directly to Joshua's heart because we need those words today as well. We are so grateful that we can take hold of the promise that you never leave or forsake us. We are not forgotten. You are sovereign. You are wise. You are loving. You are good. Help us to trust in you. And Father, help us this week to confront this crisis with a Christ-centered courage by clinging to the gospel and standing firmly in your love. We love you. We ask that you draw near to us this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.